Because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm your host, Alex Epstein. Today, as usual these days, I'm joined by Don Watkins in Pennsylvania. Hey, Don. Hey, Alex. And Stefan in Germany. Hello. Stefan Henna, I guess I should say. I never pronounce your name correctly, which is Stefan, but I don't know where to draw the line in terms of international pronunciation. So I figure first name American, second name, last name German. Okay, now you guys got a lot of stories today. I have been thinking about an issue, so I want to share that first, which is related to last week's issue where I talked about the evolution of my environmental philosophy. And I've been, been thinking a lot lately about how wrong the conventional today's environmental philosophy is. And I think it's even more wrong than I said last week. And I think it's really important for us to understand that essentially we've all been taught a way of thinking about our environment that is deeply destructive to our lives in that we're taught to think about our environment in a way that when we pursue it, when we pursue the idea of saving the environment or protecting the environment or whatever form it takes, we are actually hurting ourselves and certainly hurting a lot of other people. So I thought what I would do is I want to talk about what I think the proper view of environment is and which is really more or less the classical view and then discuss the contemporary view, which I think is a destruction of the proper view of environment. So this may be a little bit technical, but well, maybe maybe to make it a little bit less technical and maybe even more relevant, I just want to make an observation about the world that certainly comes up whenever I'm I'm looking at a lot of news, which is that whatever is the case with CO2 and how much CO2 impacts the world in a way that's dangerous, there is just an insane devaluation of abundant, reliable energy. So when we, we I'll give you a couple of examples, one is I'm reading this book called The Madhouse Effect by Michael Mann, the climate scientist who's a popularizer of climate science, but more broadly is an advocate and activist in terms of certain kinds of energy and environmental policies. And I'm in the section of the book where he talks about the negative impacts of fossil fuels via, quote unquote, climate change on all sorts of areas of life. And he talks about food and security and water quality. And he does not mention energy as valuable in any of these contexts. So basically the way it comes up is it essentially amounts to we depend on a good climate, a good stable climate, the climate we inherited for like a lot of food and for a lot of security and for clean water. And I'm just thinking, what what planet are you living on? I'm going to answer that in a minute, what planet he's on, because he's not actually on, on the He's not actually looking at the planet in the, the proper way, so he only sees a certain part of it, which is the part that humans have impacted that he thinks is is bad. Or from a certain perspective, and I'll explain this more in a minute, but he sees the he's looking at the planet in terms of what are the parts of the planet that we haven't impacted and should impact. And he thinks, oh, that's the source of all good in the world. And therefore he's focused on, okay, how does the the unimpacted environment benefit us in terms of, you know, food and, and security and water and, and everything else, every kind of prosperity. And But he, he's looking at it totally from the perspective of here's, here's how we depend on the environment, the unimpacted environment, the unimpacted climate to provide us with these things. He doesn't talk at all about how abundant, reliable energy makes these things possible. And yet if we look at food, our ancestors had completely unstable access to food because they, in part, because they didn't have abundant, reliable energy. And they had completely unstable access to any kind of good drinking water because they didn't have abundant, reliable energy. And they had horrible security in part because they didn't have abundant, reliable energy. So to talk about these values, but to not talk about the role of abundant, reliable energy in these values is, is, uh, in, incoherent in a certain way. It's just, you can't talk about them. So you might think, okay, well, this is a climate scientist. He's somewhat understandably focused on 
the role of climate and particularly the unimpacted climate, the so-called natural climate on these values. But I noticed this, this devaluing of energy, even when I read energy people. So for example, there's this uh, daily thing we read at our company from Axios. It's this Axios energy update and there it's supposedly about energy, but I can't remember. Now I don't read it comprehensively every day, but I don't remember one day where there was any kind of enthusiasm about the role of abundant, reliable energy in life. And I don't remember any significant concern for the fact that billions of people lack abundant, reliable energy. So there's something really off. It's not just, you can't just say, oh, they're so concerned about CO2, because even if you're so concerned about CO2, you have to recognize that abundant, reliable energy, that's the foundation that took us from a life expectancy of 30 to 75 or 80. So if, if you care about human life, you can't ignore abundant, reliable energy. And yet everyone is always ignoring the value of abundant, reliable energy. So what is what is going on here? And my my basic answer to this is that people have been taught an environmental philosophy that devalues human life, including the need for abundant reliable energy. So I want to summarize my view versus the conventional view. And my view, I think of as really the classical view, maybe a little bit modernized version of it. And so here it is. My environmental philosophy is that we should enhance, and all these words are important, we should enhance the human environment through human impact. So we should enhance the human environment through human impact. And today's view is that we should save the non-human environment from human impact. So it's enhance the human environment through human impact versus save the non-human environment from human impact. So let me go into what I think is the right view in terms of how we should think about environment and why I talk about the human environment. So for any organism, an environment is its surroundings. It's really every aspect of its surroundings that affect the length and quality of its life. So a dictionary primary definition is something like the surroundings or conditions in which a person, animal, or plant lives or operates. And a decent synonym is, is habitat. So, you know, the mosquito has an environment, the snail has an environment, a bear has an environment, and it's all about its surroundings as it affects that organism. And, and there's, there are different degrees of that. Like there's a more local environment and then there's a global environment as in ultimately like the global ecosystem and the solar system and the galaxy. But ultimately you're looking at it as how good is this environment for this organism to flourish? And it's very, very important to have a good environment. And thus when people talk about the environment it has a lot of moral value because you need a good environment. You need an environment conducive to you in order to flourish. So it's it's legitimate that people have a lot of value attachment to it if they think of it in the right way. So from the human, from our perspective, our environment, we, we can think of as the human environment. And the key thing about the human environment that's ignored is that it consists not only of non-man-made surroundings, but also of man-made surroundings. And these go together very much. So it's often people talk about the environment and they're just talking about things that are not man-made or that they think shouldn't be impacted. But really our environment is everything around us, whether we made it or not. So when I think of environment, I think of the human environment. I think of, I think of trees and oceans and dirt. And I also think of buildings and farms and factories and water purification plants and roads. And I think of all of these as these are part of our environment. Now, some of them came from human causes, and then some of them came like we didn't create the oceans. Um, but increasingly, we are impacting things in different ways. Like we add, of course, we add CO2 to climate, which is uh, people are make points of that. But there's also we've had enor our ancestors had enormous changes on wildlife, like making the mammoths extinct. And I think that contributed to forests growing. And, you know, we remove contamination from different um, bodies of water and we move different animal populations to certain places and we try to destroy certain organisms that threaten us. So we're we are dramatically changing the environment and ecosystem to become more uh, human. 
So when I, when I think of environment, I think of it as very much our surroundings and I want those surroundings to be as good as possible for us. And I consider our, our environment to be both the things that we make and impact and also those that we don't. And I'm totally okay with the fact that more and more of our surroundings, we are having some sort of impact on. And the reason, as I discussed last week, is that nature doesn't give us the environment we need to flourish. So to have a, a healthy human environment, we need to continually enhance our environment. And that means in add roads where roads weren't added and add buildings where buildings weren't added. We want to intelligently impact or intelligently uh, transform it. And these are generally good things, good things by the standard of, of human flourishing. So when I talk about the human environment and human flourishing, those concepts are very closely, they overlap a ton because ultimately so much of human flourishing is just that we've built a world that materially allows us to flourish. So I, I think it, it's really important, though, that we view our environment not as just the things that we don't affect, but and this idea that we shouldn't affect them. We should view our environment as as our whole surroundings. And and part of one one concept that comes up here is the concept of natural, which is people think of, well, humans are we, you know, humans are unnatural and then everything else is natural. And I think we can talk about human and non-human, but I don't like the idea that human beings are unnatural, particularly when natural is viewed positively, because I think of us as the best part of nature. So I've, I've used this line before, but I think if Martians were looking at the planet, they wouldn't say, oh, those buildings are unnatural. They'd say human beings build the best nests. And when a beaver builds a dam, we don't think of it as unnatural. So the environment around us is the, including all the things that we've, we've made are good or rather they are, they are natural and they are generally designed to improve our lives. And many, many of them are good. So human beings have enhanced the human environment in many, many ways. And, and sometimes it might make sense to draw a distinction between what we impact and what we didn't. But in general, the way we want to look at it is what in our environment is improving human flourishing and what isn't. And if you have this perspective of enhance the human environment as the environmental goal, then industrialization becomes this huge overall positive. Because what is industrialization? It's basically the use of high energy machines to intelligently transform uh, the, the human environment. It's to, it's to make it a better environment for human flourishing. And that is, that's been tremendously beneficial as evidenced most of all by the fact that we have much higher life expectancies because we've created an environment that's much more conducive to human flourishing. We've, we've taken the human environment and we've, we've made it overall better and better and better. Now, interestingly and tragically, industrialization is viewed as environmentally negative. It's an industry is usually viewed as anti-environment. There's a, there's a conflict between environment and industry. And that comes down to the concept of environment has been deeply perverted because instead of people thinking about environment in terms of the human environment and wanting that to be better for human beings environment has come to mean something like the the unimpacted environment or the non-human environment. So when people are talking about the environment, they're referring to the parts of our surroundings that are not impacted by us and they believe shouldn't be impacted by us. And this this has so many implications and and it really it really comes down to I mentioned that Michael Mann is living on a different planet. It affects totally how he looks at the planet. So when he's thinking about the environment, he's thinking about the environment, A, it's a huge value, which the human environment is a huge value, but the non-human environment is not a, a huge value. That's actually, if you think of the unimpacted environment, that's, that's an anti-human environment. If we don't impact the environment, it has many, many anti-human elements to it. But when he's looking at human impacts, he, all he's looking at, or fundamentally what he's looking at is, how are we changing the environment? And the idea is it's wrong to change the environment. So when he's looking at the environment from that perspective, he can only see negative things. 
So it's, for example, when he looks at fossil fuels and the historical role of fossil fuels, he sees nothing environmentally positive because he's been trained to not look at human impacts as potentially positive. Just human impacts are always negative. So those get no moral significance. So even though human being life expectancy has doubled, that has no significance in terms of how he's thinking about environment. And environment is really the top value that he and many other people are thinking of. And at the same time, when people see any kind of impact on the non-human environment, so they see more CO2, they think immediately, okay, this is inherently wrong because we're not supposed to impact the non-human environment. And then they also have a tendency to dramatically exaggerate negative consequences to humans. And this, this, this goes to another part of the philosophy. When your whole ultimate value is the non-human environment, one of the, the justifications for that, if you're a human being, is this idea that, that the planet is a delicate nurturer. So this idea that all the whole ecosystem is interconnected and we're all delicate and fragile and we all depend on not changing anything. And therefore, the idea is, well, if we impact this delicate nurture, this delicate ecosystem, then of course it's going to be bad for us. But this, this becomes a dogma. It's basically like saying, well, if we anger this God, of course it's going to punish us. But in reality, this delicate ecosystem needs to be dramatically changed to improve our lives. And, and there are many ways in which we can impact it that won't hurt our lives and, in fact, will help our lives. And maybe sometimes we impact it in a way that might hurt us a little bit, but is more than made up for uh, by the benefits. Like historically, coal decreased air quality for some people, but overall made their lives way better. So if you're thinking about environment in human terms, you see something like coal and you say, oh, my gosh, that's made the human environment so much better. And but if you're an environmentalist, if your whole focus is on the non-human environment, all those benefits to humans don't matter environmentally. All that matters is that, oh, we've impacted the environment and that's bad. And we expect because of our dogma of this delicate nurture that it's going to be bad for human beings. And I, I see this pattern just everywhere in the culture because our ultimate value is the non-human environment and we have this dogma that the uh, that the non-human environment is our delicate nurturer we just ignore all of the massive benefits of impacting the non-human environment and we assume that any impact is going to be catastrophic for our lives and and I'm curious what listeners think and what what you guys think because when I when I look at it in this way I just see oh wow this is why this is why people are just not seeing reality because they're they're so focused on this non-human environment as the goal and so and viewing impact as bad and so yeah if that's your goal you can't even really see all the benefits to the human environment of impact because you're not looking at the human environment as part of environment and then also you're always going to have this assumption that oh yeah sure if we impact is bad and of course it's going to be bad for human beings of course nature is going to bite us in the ass and thus you have people for centuries thinking yeah industrialization is going to make our lives worse of course it is it's going to and particularly the last 50 years and it keeps getting better and better and yet the dogma doesn't change because the environmental philosophy doesn't change there's still this view that oh yeah the proper environmental philosophy is we need to save the non-human environment from human impact and versus, oh, no, that's not the goal at all. If you care about human flourishing, you want to enhance the human environment through human impact. So uh, yeah, I'm curious what listeners think. Also curious what uh, Don and Stefan think. Any, any comments from you guys on, on how you think this perspective infects people's thinking? I think there's some like naive logic to it because in many circumstances, we use sort of a, a natural background standard as, you know, a safety standard. So for example, if you, if you, you know, let's take ionizing radiation. So we are constantly bombarded by our natural environment um, with ionizing radiation. So each and every one of us gets a bit of radiation right now. Uh, from, you know, the universe, from uh, the stones around us, from the earth, from maybe the atmosphere even. And so you can 
say, well, we have a certain level of radiation around us and we know that our bodies are sort of adapted to this, like from an evolutionary perspective. So this is definitely a safe level of radiation. But then you have to acknowledge that we are modern uh, technology humans and we can go deeper and think about like, yeah, that's definitely a, a sort of a safe background level that we know of, but we could like, what can we measure? How can we uh, assess what also would be a safe threshold for that? So for example, can we work in a nuclear power plant? And we definitely can. So people don't get a big cancerous from working at a, at a modern uh, nuclear power plant. And on the other hand, there are some things that uh, are sort of natural background variables, but that are, might still be a threat. And we learn about this by sort of abstract knowledge. We can't just stay on this naive level of knowledge. So we need to investigate in, in detail. One one more thing I want to connect this to, because some of you may have seen some of my presentations where I talk about how, and I've talked about this on the show, how how much there's this bias and sloppiness against fossil fuels and nuclear and then for solar and wind. And why why is that? And I think that this this view of environment is a very deep cause because solar and wind are viewed as natural. Now, that doesn't actually uh, stand up to scrutiny, but nevertheless, they are viewed as natural. And thus, we have this view that, yeah, the goal should be to preserve nature, to preserve the non-human environment, and then the environment will take care of us. So people think, yeah, of course, if we um, if we use solar and wind, if we use more natural energy, yeah, of course, nature will be less mad at us and life will be positive in general. And there's no investigation of, well, how good are these? Or there's very little serious investigation of how good are these at providing this energy that nature doesn't give us because there's just not a focus on that. It's just, well, if we take care of the environment, the environment will take care of us. And this is just definitely not true versus the idea if we impact the environment, the environment will punish us. And so people think they can't see any of the positives of impacting the environment because it's just a dogma that it's bad. So those are all pushed to the side. But then anything, any possible way in which nature changes is viewed as, oh, this is going to be the uh, the end of the world. So just that if you wonder, okay, why are people so biased against this? It, it's ultimately the, that they think that it's the wrong thing at the core by impacting nature. This is the wrong thing and it's going to lead to bad things. And that, that leads to a blindness toward positives or at least a minimization of them, and then this seeing way too much in terms of negatives, because really any impact is assumed to be negative. And thus the, the possibility of, oh, maybe we're maybe it's better to have a greener and warmer planet from CO2. That's that's not even on people's minds, even though that's kind of an obvious possibility, since in general, plant life doesn't have plant life likes more CO2 and humans like more warmth. But yet when people hear, oh, we're putting more CO2 in the atmosphere, they just think, oh, well, that's impacting the environment and it's wrong to impact the environment. And if we impact the environment, the environment's going to punish us. So very much, very interesting how this philosophy, this dogmatic view that's completely unscientific and, and deeply anti-human is just infecting everyone's thinking. And I, I think it's basically almost universal. Certainly people in industry voice this view of environment all the time. And this is why I'm so emphatic about start thinking in terms of the human environment. Think of your surroundings from a human perspective, and then you're going to start valuing everything that industry does, including you're going to value it environmentally. Okay, Don, what is the first story you want to cover? Yeah, so um, the New York Times was reporting on a climate panel that the White House is putting together to explore the impact of climate change and national security. And what caught my eye was the headline. So this is, again, the New York Times news article, White House climate panel to include climate denialist. And I found that really striking because, I mean, climate denialist is supposed to be an equivalent of a crank. And if we're having important policies, including security policies decided by cranks. I, like that is something that I would find really troubling. 
And so if you look into the story, there there's one person that they know is going to be in the panel. And this is the, the so-called denialist, uh, William uh, Happer. And so it, he's a Princeton physicist who's been involved in atmospheric physics since the 1970s. He headed the Department of Energy's Department of Science and probably most important on his resume, a former Power Hour guest. And yeah, he brags about it all the time. Yeah. Um, so I was curious, all right, well, what does his denial consist of? And in the whole New York Times story, you really don't get an answer to that. They quote one email from him where he says, more CO2 will benefit the world. The only way to limit CO2 would be to stop using fossil fuels, which I think would be a profoundly immoral and irrational policy. So whatever you think of that, it's not obvious that he's denying anything. It's At most, you get the sense that he thinks that there's benefits of CO2 that outweigh the risks. And so I I went into Wikipedia, which usually gives you kind of a good high-level introduction into controversial figures and their views. And what Wikipedia says, it quotes him saying, some fraction of the one degree Celsius warming during the past two centuries must have been due to increasing CO2, which is indeed a greenhouse gas. So doesn't sound like he's denying that much. And then it goes on to say most of the warming has probably been due to natural causes. So like whether you agree or disagree with that, to put that as in the same category as somebody who would say the earth isn't warming or CO2 has no climate impact, which is what I think a phrase like climate denialist does, seems really misleading. And I mean, the Wikipedia page is interesting because it follows that with a quote refutation where it just quotes one of his opponents saying his claims simply aren't true. And like the this this whole phrase of climate denier, climate denialist, like it I think this is really common how it's used, right? It's not trying to clarify. It really is similar to like anybody who's being shouted down for a politically incorrect opinion by calling them a racist or a sexist. It's saying like, look, your view's outside the tribe. And one uh, there's a really good analysis of this sort of phenomenon by a philosopher we both we all like, Ayn Rand, where she calls this the argument from intimidation. And it's basically you're trying to stifle or silence a debate. And so you assert the falsehood of a view arbitrarily, and then you use that to prove somebody's immorality. So we don't have to engage Happer's arguments. We don't have to ask, why does he think CO2 is a benefit? What's his evidence? What does he think of the you know conventional evidence? It's just he doesn't agree with the quote consensus and therefore he's immoral and therefore Trump is doing something nefarious by putting him on a climate panel. Yeah. So this, you know, the fact that there's just no, I mean, why not just explain, okay, this is what Happer says. Here's why it's wrong. And just be very clear about that versus that as you're pointing out, yeah, there's none, there's no, focus on that at all. And then what he says seems very reasonable. Interestingly, there's a guy named um, Andrew Dessler, who's one of these, he's a kind of Michael Mann type in terms of he's a popular, he's a climate scientist. I think he's a climate scientist who's a popularizer of mainstream climate science. And on Twitter, he claimed to have a like a thorough takedown of Happer. And at least I thought this was, I haven't looked into it, but and he was criticizing his use of sources or something like that. But at least I thought, okay, this is a, this is the kind of thing that you should be trying to do. You should be trying to explain this is where this person goes wrong. This is where he doesn't think uh, he knows. This is where he doesn't know what he's talking about, that kind of thing. Now, I have little confidence that this, critique is going to be that effective in part because just looking a little bit at Dessler, he is a renewable energy, uh, like a big advocate of it and making a lot of irrational claims about solar and wind. Now, that's not his expertise, but the fact that he feels confident in making these claims outside of their, his area of expertise makes me think that he's in general just ideologically disposed. Nevertheless, that'll be something interesting to look at, and that's at least the kind of thing that you should do. Stefan, what's your first story? Uh, my first agenda item is an update from the last Power Hour, which is uh, where we talked about uh, South Australia's world's largest battery built by Tesla. And uh, you asked uh, how many of the uh, news articles at the time actually uh, mentioned the capacity which 
turned out to be uh, insufficient to help South Australia last January during the heat wave. And so I made a cursory Google search, not comprehensive data here, but some of the big ones like the New York Times, Financial Post, CNN, uh, Financial Times, CNN, uh, and CNBC failed to mention the actual capacity. So they said something like, you know, from a Tesla advertisement, enough to power 30,000 homes. Some added that 30,000 homes for one hour. Um, Whoa, that, that's a big Wait a second. That, <laughs> yeah, that's a big difference. Because so, yeah. I see this in your notes. I see New York Times Australia says powering 30,000 homes. Did they say for one hour? I, I think they did not, no. Okay, I'd be interested in just checking on that one because that's a huge, that's a huge difference to say I can power it for... Uh, I can power it indefinitely versus I can power it for an hour. Yeah. So, so the way Tesla put it actually, and that's, I think where the 30,000 number comes from is Tesla said, okay, doing an emergency, uh, this can power 30,000 homes for about an hour or more. And uh, so it turned out that even that wasn't true. They had like the, uh, the discharging capacity was like a third at the time uh, in January when it was needed. And it ran for about three hours, but uh, uh, nevertheless. So that's that's just unchecked journalism. It's just taking what Tesla says and claims, and putting that in their own words when they haven't even understood the problem or you know the context of things. And I just I just want want to give some more quotes here. So, for example, Jay Weatherhill, the South Australian Premier at the time, said. Uh, so the world's largest lithium-ion battery will be an important part of our energy mix. And that, of course, is not true because it was clear from the outset that this relatively small battery was initially just, like, on the technical level, it was only meant to uh, support the local wind farm, which had about 300, 400 megawatts, I think, of capacity. And uh, then the news articles over and over uh, reformulated this and said, okay, so this will enable the wind farm to provide 24-7 energy. And that's not true, of course, because this entirely depends on the weather pattern. If there's enough, uh, you know, high production from the wind farm before uh, uh, the energy is needed to charge the battery to full capacity, yeah, then you, then you might get that out of the battery but if there's there's very little wind before uh the doldrums hit uh the the battery cannot even charge to full capacity and then there's there's no energy from the wind farm plus a battery at any given time so this depends totally on the weather nothing of that in the news articles of course and uh, so the, so this was turned then into south australia is now leading the world in dispatchable renewable energy yeah, that's a big accomplishment if nobody else even tries that. Uh, you know, you can have this little car battery and, and claim that you're you're the world's leader in that. But uh, so I think there are two culprits in this. One is the um, politicians who found this very useful to claim, oh, we are now the world leader and this will solve the actual crisis. And the other is Tesla advertising this as a real viable solution, you know, as if Tesla could come in and, you know, provide any area of the world with grid-scaled storage, which was, which was never true. And they kind of acknowledged it even when saying, okay, doing an emergency power, we can provide a small fraction of the South Australian grid, like 30,000 homes is not even that large part of, of South Australia, with emergency power if needed, but mostly we are just smoothing out this one wind farm. That's the truth, Bjarne, and of course the, the articles and totally butchered it. I, I saw in the news that there also, there's some, there's some Texas project to build the world's biggest battery. So this, this seems like this uh, contest now that people are having to build these big batteries and as much as possible, they're trying not to put in context how, how trivial they actually are and how they're not at all replacing fossil fuels or nuclear in terms of providing abundant, reliable energy. Don, what's your next story? All right. So this is also an update from a previous story. So we talked a, a little while ago about how during the polar vortex, 
millions of Midwest residents were told to turn down their heat to as low as 60 degrees to cope with the fact that there wasn't enough energy, in part, although this wasn't the only reason, in part because uh, wind power, which was really heavy in some of these states, was basically doing virtually nothing, uh, not coming anywhere close to its nameplate capacity. And one story that popped up during this time, and I've seen it pop up more and more again, is that is this discussion that what we need as kind of the next step in improving the grid is what's called demand response. And that's the idea that in order to enable grids to cope with these energy challenges where there's more demand for energy than supply, um, what we should do is allow utilities to forcibly reduce our ability to use energy. So this is just from one story that's kind of representative from Inside Climate News. It says some of the most promising ways to operate a cleaner grid involve using technology to reduce demand during peak periods and getting businesses to power down during times when the electricity supply is tight. And this is going to become more appealing because as you have more reliance on erratic forms of energy like solar and wind, there, there's this mismatch between the supply of energy and demand. And um, the, I think that we've talked about how you often get this misleading or innocuous language used to sell really uh, destructive and harmful concepts. And in this case, I mean, what demand response really is, is power deprivation, where like you can just picture Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez walking your house on a cold day and turning down your thermostat. And this is this is supposed to be what energy progress consists of when in fact it's really just energy regress. It's instead of trying to meet our need for energy, it's we are going to take away our ability to demand energy. Yeah, in in a, in a sense the ultimate demand response is a is a blackout. Yeah. I mean then you're you're really stopping people's bad behaviors. Just to connect this to the idea of talking about earlier of, of the human environment, I mean, just functionally, it's really, really important for people to be able to control their temperature, particularly to make it warm in the winter. So it should be very scary that, yeah, this, this ability can be taken from you at any time. And the fact that we are becoming less and less powerful should be an indication that there's something wrong and and people's people's desire to have abundant reliable energy or another way to think of it is plentiful power on demand that's viewed as an inconvenience in the quest for an unchanged climate so it just again goes to show we're not thinking about the human environment you know about improving that about enhancing that for human beings through human impact we're just trying to save the non-human environment from human impact and then hope that somehow everything will turn out well for us, even as we're freezing to discomfort or worse. Stefan, what's your next story? Yeah, so my next story is about Amazon and Amazon has a program, has announced a program called Shipment Zero and uh, it aims at making half of Amazon shipments carbon neutral by 2030. Uh, and they say, uh, so the news item actually says you, uh, they will use more renewable energy like solar power, have more packages delivered in electric vans and push suppliers to remake their packaging. So uh, actually, these strategies have in part been tried before. So uh, I think the German uh, uh, Deutsche Post uh, delivery uh, service, uh, sort of state-owned service, uh, has used some electric uh, vans in a pilot program. And so one interesting thing was uh, that the drivers complained that during winter they had the choice of, you know, either putting the heat on, the heating system on, which is also electric in this van, of course, or, you know, uh, making sure they come back to home base on this uh, on this charge. And uh, so the broader perspective, of course, is that most of the goods Amazon sells are manufactured, transported around the world and operated using fossil fuels. You know, something like 85% of the world's energy are come from fossil fuels. And, you know, it's, it's really not 
I don't think even if you believe that you need to cut back on the fossil fuels or on the CO2 emissions, that this is really the best uh, starting point. But of course, Amazon follows uh, the leadership of other large companies in you know setting these goals to reduce their their carbon budget. And you know, Apple is probably the the currently leading pioneer in this. Yeah, I mean, Amazon is the most obvious because it's just well let, let me give because just so much of it is transport and then transport is so directly either petroleum or often less efficiently electricity mostly from fossil fuel sources so whatever this is just one of these stories where i see even without looking into the numbers okay i know that either there's a lie or that amazon is going to suck and i really so i really hope that they're lying. But no, notice that Amazon's top value, which has served it very well, is customer obsession. Now, how is it customer obsession to make your delivery systems worse? So th this, if, if we really think about human flourishing in the human environment, if you're concerned about CO2, you, you need to be thinking of how do I address this while providing abundant, reliable energy? But just to do all these things to compromise life, to make things more expensive, to make life less efficient, to make it less comfortable, and then you're still not anywhere meaningfully achieving the goal that you say that it's just it's just this pure sacrifice to dogma. And it's exactly what I don't want Amazon doing. What I would really like is the people who are concerned about this stuff should be doing everything they can to encourage the best low or no carbon sources of energy, such as encouraging the decriminalization of nuclear. But each each like company just doing these little symbolic things and then lying about their impacts, that's beneficial to nobody except for their own prestige. But it could be really damaging to their operations just to get worse. And you think about how much we rely on Amazon, how what a reputation Amazon has. And I don't want to be the one to have some really important package and say, oh, well, it was delayed because of our new electric van program. That is, that's not customer obsession. It's dogma obsession. Don, uh, what's your next story? Uh, another dogma obsession. So this is, I, I call this plastic penance, which is uh, there's this trend that the New York Times reports on of plastic purgers. So, I mean, one way to appreciate how valuable something is, is to look what, at what it would mean to give it up. And so in the realm of plastic, which is made from oil, there's these people who are going through really insane contortions in order to avoid using plastic. And so just a kind of few examples from this reporting, um, you at the, this is a quote at the grocery store, you find yourself staring at a 10 foot shelf of yogurt brands with only one in a glass jar, we by YoPlay. But you don't like we by YoPlay. Also, it costs much more. What do you do? And then it quotes this woman from Santa Monica who's head of the Plastic Pollution Coalition. I wake up and think, how am I going to make it through the day without using any single-use plastic? Right away, the challenge hits you in the bathroom with the toothbrush. And it, it, you know, it talks about the different things that people have to do to avoid offending material. Like they can't go to restaurants that use plastic plates and they can't get fast food because of the wrappers. And if they want a smoothie at a juice bar, they can't unless they'll put them in a stainless steel to go cup. They have to bake their own bread or get it from a bakery because they don't want to use fresh sealed bags. And then they really lament their situations where plastic is unavoidable. Like it's a big moral quandary that you can't get a medical procedure without a plastic syringe or a, or a drip bag. And that, you know, plastic water bottles are indispensable for natural disasters. And uh, in the most self-aware paragraph, I think in the story, it says, still some wonder whether buying metal ice cube trays, you know, in, instead of the plastic ones, is just another example of conscious consumerism. Buying a four-pack of metal straws at Urban Outfitters can be a kind of trendy virtue signaling. It offers a way to feel good without examining one's larger environmental impact, like the energy required to ship glass or metal, both heavier than plastic. And, I mean, my reaction on reading this is that, like, the whole orientation is that 
you gain virtue by sacrificing in order to avoid impacting the world. And then who are the villains? Well, the villains are the people who are creating values, right? Like you're virtuous because you use metal straws and won't, you know, go to McDonald's, but like the people who supply the energy that make even those things possible, they're, they're sinful because they're not depriving themselves of all of these things. And it's just the, the whole framework for what it means to like what you should be focused on in life, I think is uh, severely anti-human to say the least. Yeah. So just to keep tying this to what I've been talking about today, it's just the, the highest goal is the unimpacted environment, the, you know, nature with as little human impact as possible. And so really what, what do you do there? You do, Ultimately, you do inaction, and what they're finding is, oh well, any action impacts the environment. Any 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 action has some impact, and thou shalt not impact. So, what do we do? And versus just we'll question the code and say, no, our goal is to enhance the human environment, and thus it's good to use plastic. And then let's intelligently use it. So let's figure out how do we dispose of it? How do we get energy from it? But this is another case where people have this by if if your standard or your ultimate goal is the unimpacted environment then it just it seems like the world is terrible because oh my gosh there's all this plastic piling up and there's more co2 in the atmosphere and you don't see wow the world is so good it's getting so much better the earth is so much of a better place for human beings to live and the whole thing is what did you define as good if you defined it defined as good a planet without human impact yeah, it's become worse. But if you defined as good a planet that's good for human beings, then it's become better. And the only way to make it even better is to keep focusing on what's good for human beings, not to focus on what won't have impact. Stefan, uh, you want to cover one more story? Uh, sure. So one story I want to talk about is a column by former power guest Jude Clementi. And it reminded me of a curious statistic uh, that I uh, that I saw some years ago, and uh, so it's about why the U.S. coal power plants are less modern than the Chinese coal power plants. So there's so the basic function of a coal power plant is that you know coal gets burned and the heat then creates steam in a boiler. And that creates steam pressure, which which then drives the shaft of a turbine, which generates the actual electricity. So, and so usually you think this is very outdated technology. The basics are there since the 19th century, and uh, but actually there are newer power plant types that are supercritical and ultra supercritical. And what that means is that in these power plants, the steam uh, or the water is heated to a, a higher heat level and the and kept under bigger pressure and that creates greater efficiency in the heat transfer from the coal to the actual electricity generation in the turbine and so this is quite significant um so the overall efficiency uh comes from up from like 33% uh to 40% between you know the heat content of the coal to the actual electricity generated and this is quite significant. And so the curious statistic that I was reminded of was that China has so many more supercritical uh, coal power plants compared to America, although America generally is still considered the much more developed country, of course. And so at the time, I thought it was just, you know, something like, uh, oh, they are building much more in much quicker, at much quicker pace. But one of the reasons is actually environmental regulations. So... Uh, Regulations, uh, for example, like the New Source Review, which is uh, a regulation over, overseen by the EPA, which forces plant operators who want to modernize their plant or build a new one to, for example, use the latest efficiency uh, uh, technology to mitigate to mitigate emissions. And uh, so there's a there's a large sort of regulatory framework by which you have to uh, get permission to upgrade your power plant. 
And so operators typically avoid that as much as possible. You want in America, you want to run the cold power plant, uh, you know, with the oldest possible technology because that prevents the EPA from saying, "Hey, you have to pay a lot of of uh, of bills for this new technologies that we want to install in your uh, power plant." And uh, so the effect of this is that. America actually runs a lot more older technology in its power plant than, for example, China. One one interesting perspective on this that I think it came up a couple of years ago when I was talking to Robert Bryce in one of our discussions, and it just occurred to me in passing when he was talking about increases in efficiency, it might have been in coal mining or something else, but that, or maybe it was power plants, that you know, to increase the efficiency of something that's good at providing abundant, reliable energy. That's such a huge thing, and it has so many wide-ranging consequences, whether you're providing more power for less money or more power with fewer of potentially dangerous emissions. That's really good, and yet there's so little focus on that. And in fact, sometimes it's made much more difficult. And yet all of these symbolic things by certain users of power, which is actually which actually hurt their customers because it's 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 doing things in a way that's actually inefficient from an economic perspective and thus makes makes life more expensive that's viewed as virtue so news source reviews is, is an example where the it's an example of a broader problem where we don't value improving the best technologies we just value uh, replacing them with these inferior but supposedly natural technologies all right that's going to wrap it up for today Thanks, guys, for joining me. If you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email us. I'm at alex at industrialprogress.net. Don is at don at industrialprogress.net. Stefan is at s-t-e-f-f-e-n at industrialprogress.net. If you want to support the show, besides sharing it with friends and family, one great thing you can do is bring in one of us as a speaker or recommend us as a speaker if you know of any high-level events. For more information about that, email don at industrialprogress.net. Rather, next week we will be back with a bunch of new great topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.